Tonight, like I said, is kind of a, I'm told, something of a holiday occasion. So I got to thinking about it and something occurred to me. Even primitive peoples apparently kept calendars. Uh, in the ancient world, there were the Hebrew and the Egyptian and the Greek calendars, um, the Chinese, the Babylonians, where society surfaced over time, advanced or decidedly less so, so did a means of charting the passage of time, uh, of anticipating the future with names and numbers, uh, observing recurring days and seasons of celebration and remembrance. The calendar in which you and I operate, if you didn't know, is actually a slight adaptation of the Roman calendar. It's been around for quite some time. And the transition from one year to another year and the celebration thereof is in many a sense an ancient time-honored tradition by humans throughout the entire world. In my comparatively brief time on planet Earth, I have known the occasion of New Year's to carry with it uh, the potential of new beginnings for a great many people. An old year dies, a new one begins, so people figure this is as good a time as any to exchange bad habits for better ones, to take on a new diet, or to set, on, set to work on some project long tucked away in hibernation. Life is, after all, often a series of ups and downs, of success and failure, and ebb and flow, and sameness and change, and on and on it goes, uh, until it doesn't. The imposed annual cycle of reset will, of course, come to a close for each of us eventually. If you didn't know that, now you do. Welcome to church. Next week, um, we will return to the Gospel of Matthew, which is what we do ordinarily here at Van City on a normal given evening. But tonight, I wanted to spend uh, another holiday evening in something of a, a one-off uh, for you, the faithful few, the, the select few that happen to uh, grace the doorstep tonight. And this is a conversation about beginnings and ends. And I had it in mind that maybe that tonight would be a unique evening, no, no Van City kids, who, lots of people traveling out of town, and I thought maybe this would be a, a unique moment for the small group of us here this evening. Uh, lately, my four-year-old son, who just ran up here and yelled my name, um, had been, he's been filled with questions about the exact location of his uh, grandpa, a man who died this fall. And he asked things like, where is grandpa in the specific spatial sense? You know, can we go there? Will he come back from wherever he is? And for a number of reasons, some of them obvious and others that will become apparent as we go on, answering questions like these is a complicated endeavor. And it's not only because he's four and his understanding is limited, but because the questions that he's asking and their answers are both ancient and wonderful and scary and cosmic and beautiful. If you live to be 100 years old, you will do so across the span of, I'm told, 5,200 weeks. If you're 25 years old, for example, or around there, you have 3,900 weeks left. Uh, but perhaps you might die at 70, which is closer to the average depending on gender, meaning you have 2,340 weeks remaining. Or, like many you have yourself known and mourned, you may never reach what some refer to as a ripe old age and die at what others call all too young. This is your life, and it's ending one moment at a time. And this information, of course, is not unique to you, the individual. We are all, in some sense, en route to a destination. But, of course... We, uh, those of us who follow Jesus, are disciples of a rabbi, a teacher. We have a worldview contingent and built upon the way of Jesus. 
And though there are inevitable similarities with our worldview and other worldviews, you know, like any other person, disciples of Jesus believe that they have ultimate truth and that they have objective morality. All people believe that in some respective way or another. Like many religious worldviews, we have a creator God, we have life after death, those types of, those types of things. But there is something about our take as disciples of Jesus on the future that is unique in all the world. And it comes after the end. Uh, though the writings that have been compiled in the Bible were all drafted a very long time ago, the Bible does indeed offer a glimpse of the end yet to come. And while it's true that the story of scriptures, if you know anything about it, it becomes something of a tragedy, only three chapters in, the story doesn't end as a tragedy. So if you have a Bible or the phone thing, open it to Revelation chapter 21, which is at the very end of your Bible, if you're uh, new to the story of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21 is right near the end. And I want to begin by framing the Bible as a story. It is not an encyclopedia of truth. The Bible is not a scattered, disconnected, decontextualized volume of doctrine. But the Bible is actually a story, primarily. That doesn't mean that it's not true, but it is a story. The Bible does include historical archives. It includes doctrine, absolutely. It includes discourse and poetry and lyrics. It even has a play. But the vast majority of the Bible is actually narrative or a story. We believe that the Bible is a library of writings, both human and divine, that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. And that library's narrative can be divided into six chapters, if you like. God establishes a kingdom, and he creates humanity in his image that they might share in his rule and his reign over the good world he has created. Humanity, however, if you know the story, blows it. They rebel against the king in order to pursue their own kingdom on their own terms. But God is unwilling to abandon his kingdom project, so he chooses a man called Abram and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, and then the people of Israel, he selects to join him in beginning the kingdom anew. And if you know the story, Israel, like Adam and Eve, fails. So then, on down the line, Jesus comes, and he succeeds where Adam and Eve and Israel, as well as you and I, have all failed, and God's kingdom is inaugurated once again. The mission to spread the kingdom to the world continues in what we call the church, which is another way of saying disciples of Jesus on throughout history. But of course, the story does eventually have an ending, and that ending is actually beyond you and I. So let's look at Revelation, which is one of the Bible's weirdest books and spend some time talking about how we understand the Bible's ending in the context of the Bible's story. You guys ready? I know there's only a few of us, but are you ready? Yeah. It's gonna be, thank you so much, all right. Now, a bit of background. The book that we call Revelation was actually authored, it's a letter. It was authored by one of Jesus' disciples named John. John had been exiled to an island called Patmos, and he's writing to a small community of Jesus' followers in Asia Minor who had been suffering terribly under the heavy foot of Roman persecution. Things had gotten quite bad. So to this oppressed band of disciples, the world was big and evil, and they were left to face it all alone. So on this island, John experiences this incredible vision about the persecution that the church was facing at that specific time and place. And the bulk of John's writing deals with what was, for he and his audience, the present, and is, for you and I, the past. But John's vision does include a bit about the ultimate fate of the cosmos, or the future. 
So in drafting this letter to the persecuted disciples of Jesus, John reveals to his readers that tucked behind this empire of cruelty that loomed ominously over the church of the first century was someone called Satan, the great enemy and antagonist of the Bible story. Now we are centuries beyond the Old Testament, and Jesus and his followers in the first century understand that the old unnamed snake in Genesis, who first led Adam and Eve astray, was actually the devil himself, was Hasatan, the accuser, Satan. And he was there in the beginning, and his parade of death and destruction continues up until the point that John is writing this letter and on into the future. It felt for the church in the first century as though the entire world was coming to an end, and it often feels that way now as well. For John, this little group of Christians in Asia Minor has been woven into a cosmic spiritual battle as old as the universe itself. And to these shivering disciples of Jesus comes a letter of revelation, we call it. Jesus will triumph, ultimately, and his faithful followers will enjoy and share in that triumph eventually. So let's look down at Revelation 21, where Jesus' ultimate victory finally comes to fruition. Revelation 21, verse 1 it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Uh, sea in ancient Hebrew thought was a symbol of chaos and evil and upset. So there's no longer any sea, no longer any evil or chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those, are, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Skip down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, and for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, from there, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Look over at the following chapter, uh, chapter 22. Let's read this beginning in verse 3, Revelation 22, 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and forever. The final two chapters of the Bible speak beautifully of the fate of the cosmos, and obviously there's a certain level of uh, poetic descriptors, and I don't know if there's actually no sun, or there's probably not tattoos on foreheads, who knows, I I'm not there yet or anything, but 
Um, the point is that it's a beautiful world restored to the goodness of the garden from the, the beginning of the Bible story. It's brimming with potential. Humanity reigns with God like they were supposed to in the beginning and in God's loving presence forever. And evil and suffering and death are put out for good. And of course, the idea of ultimate recreation isn't exclusive to the book of Revelation. We get several mentions of the fate of the cosmos throughout the Bible story, some brief and some detailed. Turn with me one more time, if you don't mind, to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. You can consult the table of contents if you like, or just click the little button. Uh, during what we've called chapter 3, if you remember the story of God's slide that was on here a few minutes ago, the nation of Israel is sent into exile. So during that time... A prophet called Isaiah speaks of a coming Messiah, a coming Messiah, and he even talks a little bit about the destiny of mankind. So if you're in Isaiah, turn to chapter 65, and let's read Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 17. It says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. That language sounds familiar. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Skip down to verse 23. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord." This motif of recreation carries on throughout the New Testament authors. In 2 Peter, it is written, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Speaking of Jesus' return to his father, Luke writes this in Acts, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Though the vision of new creation is the climactic conclusion of the last book of the Bible, most of Revelation, if you read it, in, in all its bizarre symbology and there's dragons and numbers, it's really, really bonkers, most of Revelation is not concerned with the future at all. What it does offer the reader is a glimpse into God's purposes throughout history, purposes leading to an ultimate conclusion. And regardless of your ultimate expiration date along the great timeline of world history, you and I and every person to die before us is en route to a cosmic destination, so to speak. To better understand the Bible's take on that journey, I want to do a really quick tour through the meta-narrative of the scripture and this idea of the Bible as a story. And I came up with this to help us. Uh, a well-worn trope of hero-centric storytelling is something called the character arc. It's a term that refers to the journey or inner transformation of a given character over the course of his or her story. Now, in the Bible story, the protagonist is God, uh, and he's already perfect in his character and unchanging in that sense. His character doesn't change from the story's outset. But God does, in the narrative, experience a journey. So, for the sake of an analogy, imagine several great heroes of fiction. Let's begin with uh, Marty McFly as a great example. Um, you have John McClane, uh, Harry Potter, Sarah Connor fits the motif as well, Rocky Balboa, and Luke Skywalker. There they are. In many stories like these, 
Our protagonists are normal, they're likable, everyday people, but often down on their luck or in a bad place in their lives or simply not the type for whom everything always works out. And they are in the story typically confronted with an obstacle. And since we like them and we believe in their character, we root for them as the audience or the reader or the viewer. Often the hero will eventually be brought to their lowest point when all seems lost and the audience leans forward hoping against hope that they overcome. And the story's drama, its conflict and tension is born from our hero in the face of opposition and the genuine desire for their victory. In archetypal fiction, the hero often overcomes set odds and the world of the story is changed because of it. This is what we call an arc. In many of these stories, the hero or the heroine is ultimately united with their love by the story's conclusion. Of course, I realize the Bible isn't Die Hard or Back to the Future, but there is something for us here about the journey of a hero that helps us wrap our heads around the arc of the Bible. The way our story begins is not with a down-and-out hero in the making, but with a hero of unimaginable power. In Genesis 1, God crafts the cosmos from chaos, and then he creates humankind in his image to share in his rule over the world. And our hero is introduced in this idyllic scene that very quickly transitions Uh, into conflict as the kingdom rebels against the king. And as the story continues, our hero doesn't always get his way. He becomes increasingly frustrated as his project continues to spiral downward further and further from the portrait painted in Genesis 1 and the expectations established therein. But even from these initial moments of decline, God promises a rescuer to come, someone that the text calls a son of Eve or a human being who will crush this weird talking snake of Genesis 3, a hero who will overcome the curse, the enemy of death. Though in the very earliest mention of this rescuer, all the way back in Genesis, it said that the snake will strike the rescuer's heel, which is a weird thing to say. So the story moves along and God eventually focuses on a character called Abram, later Abraham, assuring him that through his descendants, a king will come. And the potential of a good world we saw at the story's opening will finally be restored. And if you know the story, from Abraham came the nation of Israel, and eventually Israel is reluctantly given a king, and then more kings, and the line of ensuing kings shows absolutely no sign of this promised snake-crushing rescuer, this hope for the world. So you're reading it, and you're kind of thinking like, oh, okay, here's King David, he's a hero, he's a man after God's own heart, sounds pretty promising, he might be the one. Nope, he's a murderer, he's an adulterer, that's not him. Uh, Maybe it's this next guy, nope, that's not him. Maybe it's this next guy, nope, nope, and on the story goes. Things get so bad that the entire nation of Israel is in utter decline and the horrifying empire of Babylon drives them in terror and agony from their home and into exile. So there's no kingdom, there's no king, the plan seems to have failed. And then in that season of hopelessness, this nutty group of people called prophets appear and they haven't given up on this hope of a coming king to restore the world to God's vision of a garden brimming with potential to share with humanity. If you remember that text we read from Isaiah... And then from there, we jump forward, and the New Testament opens us by introducing this character called Jesus of Nazareth. And he's not a glorious king. He's not a bronzed warrior. He is a refugee baby turned peasant stonemason in some obscure town called Nazareth on the fringe of the empire. 
And if you know that story, Jesus, who's an actual person of history, is not unlike many archetypal heroes of fiction. We, the reader, are drawn to him, and yet not everything lines up for him. Jesus, in spite of being loved by many and doing good for everyone, the story says, is also despised and persecuted. He's rejected, and ultimately, he finds himself at what seems to be his lowest point when all is lost. He's executed by the Roman Empire like a common criminal, an enemy of the state. And you, the reader, are thinking, this is the king, this is the person we've been waiting for, but not unlike some of our best stories, that's not the ending. Our hero is raised from the dead, he defeats death, and is victorious on a cosmic scale. Jesus' resurrection from the dead foreshadows the resurrection of all the dead and demonstrates his power and authority over death himself. Even this refugee baby turned peasant stonemason in an obscure town on the fringe of the empire becomes king of the universe. In fact, the story ultimately concludes with our hero restoring the goodness and the potential of the garden where our story began once and for all, defeating the talking snake once and for all, and our hero is united with his love once and for all. In this case, our hero's love is his followers, the church, and he's united with them here on earth in a creation made new. And interestingly, Revelation does not offer a portrait of God's people suddenly transported out of this world to live some spiritual existence somewhere else. Um, This is a very modern conception of the future and life after death. I would argue that it's altogether mistaken. It's nowhere to be found in Scripture. And this is one reason that I often struggle for the words to describe the future to my four-year-old son. The Bible, of course, often uses the term heaven. But in the Bible, it's never used as a a word that describes a place you go when you die. In the Bible, heaven sometimes, frankly, simply means sky, sky. Or uh, it is a surrogate word that can mean God. You know, in Matthew's gospel, you get the kingdom of heaven um, instead of the kingdom of God. In other places, heaven is just where God is. It's God's space. And it is accessible to his people in the here and now. It's close to you, as close as the air on on your skin, which is why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And while it's true that those who are in Jesus, so to speak, and have died are absent from the body and present with God, but this is something that in theology we call the intermediate state. And we call it that for a reason, because the Bible does not understand that to be the ultimate destination of those who are, in the Bible's language, asleep. Think back to what we just read in Revelation. You may have noticed that there's no nation of disembodied spirits exiled to some space somewhere else. Uh, This, I would argue, is a worldview with its roots actually in Platonic philosophy. It's not in the Bible at all. The Bible tells us a very different story, one that scholar N.T. Wright describes as life after, life after death. Um, What popular culture often describes as heaven is not really the end of the story. Our world made new and us living in it in our renewed and repaired physical corporeal bodies is the end of the story. On the misunderstanding of an escape to heaven, scholar Craig Bartholomew writes this, John's depiction of salvation is not one of escape from earth into a spiritualized heaven where humans should dwell forever. Instead, John is shown and shows us in turn that salvation is the restoration of God's creation on a new earth. In this restored world, the redeemed of God will live in resurrected bodies within a renewed creation from which sin and its effects have been expunged. This is the kingdom that Christ's followers have already begun to enjoy in foretaste. So to imagine humanity's role in creation 
as one of ultimate escape up to heaven actually renders the Bible's narrative nonsensical. Because if our hope in future is to go somewhere else, then the Bible is no longer a unique interpretation of universal history and of the world, and consequently, it no longer has much to say at all about humanity's active involvement in history now. Indeed, if our story concludes in a spiritual escape, it's no longer unique in all the world because, listen, only disciples of Jesus believe in bodily resurrection in a world made new. That's unique to the Jesus worldview. That's how this story ends, and that's how a new story begins. Of course, even so, I realize a tremendous amount of debate and disagreement surrounds the exact timing and sequence in regards to the end of the story. But all followers of Jesus, at least orthodox, historic followers of Jesus down throughout history, agree on the following four elements at least. Jesus will return. There will be a resurrection from the dead. There will be judgment. And then there will be new creation. As promised, the snake-crushing King Jesus will return. And like Jesus, every one of us, pardon me, will be resurrected from the dead. Jesus will judge the world And this will be wonderful for some and horrifying for others. And some of us are uncomfortable imagining Jesus as the judge of the world, but it's a reality clearly stated and reiterated many times over by Jesus himself. In Matthew, he says this, But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Yikes. Um, Later in Matthew's gospel, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out many demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Here's another one from Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So the sheep, if you're not familiar with shepherding metaphors, uh, the sheep are representative of Jesus' faithful followers, and they will inhabit the new heaven and the new earth, our world made new. And the goats, representative of those who reject the way of Jesus, will go away to what the Bible calls destruction. In Hebrew thinking... Judgment was more than uh, the simple and foreboding courtroom paradigm that dominates much of our thinking today. We typically think of judgment as guilty, you know, and then a, a sentence is pronounced. But instead, in Hebrew thinking, judgment is always a good thing. Judgment is hope. We want there to be judgment, the restoration of what the Bible calls shalom, goodness, wholeness, peace, completion, and the destruction of evil. Destruction is about way more than this simple, crude idea of punishment. It's not purely punitive. It's the eradication of evil and of those unrepentantly resolved to doing evil from God's good, healed world, and in turn, the eradication of evil and suffering and death and injustice. So in the story, the cosmos itself will not be destroyed and then, you know, kind of made from scratch again. It will be restored. And that's a really important distinction because it implies a certain amount of continuity and familiarity of the good in this world that we know now and in the age to come rather than, you know, this incomprehensible world of clouds and endless hymns and harps or whatever it might be. Human beings were intended to enjoy God in the full context of life 
within God's good creation. When God set out to deal with sin and with the ruinous consequences of sin, he set out to destroy the enemy of creation, not to destroy creation itself. Creation will be redeemed. It was and is, in God's own words, good. And this restoration and redemption of the cosmos will be completely comprehensive in scale. The whole of humanity, creation itself, will be purged of evil and suffering and death. Every wrong will be undone in both the context of humanity, the physical realm, the spiritual realm, the environment all around you, the animal kingdom, everything. A comprehensive redemption reminds us of the story in which we find ourselves, the broadness of it. Often many of us, I think, lapse into an individualistic understanding of salvation apart from the full creational and relational context in which we were created to live, meaning uh, many of us sort of carry with us a paradigm um, that the whole of the biblical story and the way we relate to Jesus revolve around me. You know, the idea is like me and Jesus, me and my personal relationship with Jesus, me and Jesus in heaven or whatever. And yet God intends to save and restore not me only, but all of creation. And a comprehensive redemption implies that human cultural development and redeemed work will carry on in the age to come. Because read the story. They were there before the fall. They were created good. We will be loosed to continue the work of stewarding and developing the world as God first saw fit, but finally released from the bondage of sin and suffering and death. That is actually a beautiful wonderful, hopeful story. And it's actually a story that you can wrap your head around much more so than eventually an incomprehensible escape to the cloud somewhere. So for all the understanding or misunderstanding uh, around the Bible, for all the justified confusion confusion, um, that surrounds the Bible as a book, at its heart, you actually find a very clear, very beautiful narrative. And it's a familiar arc. It's one that makes sense to us as humans. It speaks to the human condition. It answers all our most existential dilemmas with beautiful resolve. The trouble is getting there to that resolve. And that trouble is named death. It's death who removes us from the story before it achieves resolution. And according to the entire story of Scripture, death is the consequence of rebellion against God. So we will die, all of us. But Disciples of Jesus commit the entirety of themselves, flawed and messy and screwed up though we may be, we commit the entirety of ourselves to the one who has conquered death. Only in Jesus are our hopes for human history, for the world, for ourselves, for those we love brought together in the future of God's coming kingdom. And thus, we get to look to the future and find not an empty void, not the darkness of death, not some unimaginable utopia in the clouds. When we look to the future, we imagine and crave the return of the king, the day when evil and suffering are banished for good. And in the words of Paul, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the complication in God's story. Satan, who in the words of Jesus comes to steal and kill and destroy, is the antagonist who rouses death. Ever since Genesis 3, sin and evil have run amok in God's creation and the wages of sin is death. And most of us, I think, have probably spoken with death in ways big or small. We've been dragged over the broken glass of horrific tragedy or we've simply scraped our knees and broken our bones. These small reminders of our own frailty, harbingers uh, proclaiming that we are perishable And one day, a head that aches will become a brain that goes dark altogether. And in the story of the Bible, death is not God's plan. 
It's not his will. It's not his intent. It's not his best. For followers of Jesus, death is an enemy, an enemy whose parade of affliction and misfortune and sorrow defy God. It happened against God's will in rebellions, uh, rebellion and defiance of God's will. And one day, death itself will be brought to an end. Later this evening, uh, we will begin another year in our adapted Roman calendar. For some of you, I imagine the months behind us were anything but hopeful. Uh, rather than joy, perhaps the year was replete with sorrow, complication, struggle, I don't know. Perhaps other of you had a good year, one marked by happiness and joy and good memories. But I venture a guess that most of us, uh, for most of us, the year was probably something of a mixed bag. And to continue in my presumption, the year ahead will, will likely be much the same, good and bad, concurrently. So when I imagine, like I said earlier, how we might spend this evening together, a decidedly more intimate than usual evening with just a few of us, um, an evening before we return to our rhythm of teaching, the stories and practices of Jesus, Gospel of Matthew, all that, I thought perhaps we might frame the night with hope and with perspective. On a night like tonight, before we set into the new year, why in the world would we go on about revelation and life after life after death, and why go on about what makes that distinction so important? And then I thought of this uh, story. I remember once while traveling many years ago, uh, I had stopped at a gas station. Another musician with whom I was traveling at the time was standing outside smoking a cigarette. And as I approached, he flicked the butt away on the ground, as smokers often do. And this fellow was a friend of mine, so I had this sort of relational equity to be able to razz him a bit. Um, so I said, hey, man, gross, you know, or whatever. I said, don't, don't throw your smoldering death stick on the ground, just like trash for us all to have to step over, in which he shrugged and said, uh, well, you know, the world's going to burn. And I thought for a moment at that time, this is a long time ago, I was like, huh, isn't he sort of right? Uh, what is the point? And that's why the distinction, I think, is so important. I realize that's a crude little analogy and story, but more than a personal escape to the clouds, God's ultimate end is the complete and utter undoing of every wrong and every evil. God's ultimate purpose in creation is that the world he once created good will be utterly restored, a place in which on earth as it is in heaven is finally answered in full. The Bible concludes with a portrait of the perfection of all human striving toward beauty and truth and goodness, a portrait of a world where every tear is wiped away, where every one of us knows God face to face, so to speak, and knows in full that we are his and he is ours. And that vision unites us and invites us to become responsible actors in God's story, no longer capable of running from the responsibilities and the agonies of human life. Instead, we all take our share in the struggles and the anguish of human history, and yet with confidence that what is committed to Jesus will find its place in the final kingdom. So our work in the meantime concerns not only the spread of the gospel, the story of Jesus, so to speak, bringing others into God's kingdom. That's important, but that's not it only. It also concerns the renewal of culture. The cultural mandate that opens the story of scriptures to you know, subdue the earth and fill it the cultural mandate to rule and to reign as those who represent God to the world, it continues to apply to this very day and on into the future. God has designed us, the people of God, the church of Jesus, to be an instrument of renewal and reconciliation in the world. And this is why we, as a church, as Van City, set out to practice the way of Jesus together. You know, ask yourself, why, why go through all this trouble? And the answer is, we want to live 
for the future, not just wait for the future. Why do the hard work of disciplined spiritual formation now, if, you know, ultimately we'll be brought to full completion on a coming day in the future somewhere else? Why work at all? Why care for creation? Why learn and practice the way of Jesus? Why does Jesus have a way of life at all if the only thing that matters really is a one-off momentary incantation of inviting him into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, which is a formula never once mentioned in all of the scriptures? Because what you do today matters for the future. Suppose you have like a very realistic ambition to move to some other place and inhabit some other home. And suppose that in all likelihood, this will probably come to pass. It's almost definite. But it may be quite some time before it happens, years perhaps. Now you could, of course, ignore everything about your present state in order to hold out for the future. You know, do not invest in the people around you, the things around you. Neglect your current home. Neglect yourself while you're there. After all, you're headed somewhere else eventually. What does it matter? Or you can set out to live with great purpose every single day, making the most of the time and the relationships and the work to be done all around you every day. After all, you realize that much of what you do in this season will have massive consequences on what happens in the next season. And I realize that analogy is crude, and it's an analogy, so it breaks down eventually. But most of us probably don't live with a concentrated effort to neglect today in favor of tomorrow. But many of us, I think myself included, do lack the paradigm often in which our concern for the present and for the future might live together with great meaningful purpose and hope every single day. Because I get that we can never usher in the completion of God's kingdom ourselves. Absolutely, that's true. Only the return of King Jesus can bring that about. But our obedience in the here and now matters. Our effort matters big time. Our worship, our good works, our faithfulness to Jesus matters. And no, you will not heal every hurt, nor correct every injustice, nor remove every evil, but we are called to become active participants in bringing God's reign and rule to earth now. We are ambassadors of the coming kingdom in our families, in our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods. We act as a sign of the coming kingdom in the here and now. And why act now? Because though sin and suffering and evil will be eliminated altogether in the future, they can all be pushed back today in your own life, for your children and your families, for your workplaces, your neighborhood, your cities, which is why Jesus commanded that his disciples pray on earth as it is in heaven. So let us long for the day of Jesus' return, absolutely, while living for that day with eager, active anticipation in the year to come. Three times in the final chapter of the final book in the story of God, Jesus repeats the words, I am coming soon. And John, Revelation's author, actually concludes his letter and the entire Bible itself with the only appropriate response to that quotation. He says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. So let us live for that day in the future and let us live for that day this evening, tomorrow, and on into the year to come. Let's pray together.